Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast with host Patrick Donahoe, author of the best-selling personal finance book, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, and one of the nation's most influential financial advisors. The Wealth Standard's focus this season is investing. 2020 opened with markets and asset prices at all-time highs, but many of us experience more financial uncertainty now than we did a decade ago. Although there are more choices and opportunities than ever before, the risk-to-reward ratio teeters on a global fulcrum, contributing to the roller coaster of emotions surrounding financial well-being. It seems like everyone is walking on eggshells. This season, we'll cover topics revolving around investment theory and strategy, atypical investments versus conventional investments, and the role of investing within personal wealth strategies. The Wealth Standard Podcast is committed to inspiring you to be more financially free. There is no better time to gain clarity about your wealth strategy, your investments, and your financial future than now. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Patrick. Thank you for tuning into this episode. It's a fun one, and it's with uh, someone that I've had on a number of times, for those of you who have been listening for years. Uh, His name's Andy Tanner, one of the most uh, informed guys that I know, also a very deep thinker. And he lives in Utah, close to me, and so he usually comes in the office to do an episode. Obviously, right now, everything's shut down, so we just did it through Zoom. But Andy and I, we have to block out the entire day because we essentially just get into all sorts of theories and perspectives. And there aren't many thinkers out there that are open-minded to the point where they can explore their own perspectives, their own opinions, and be willing to be challenged. Uh, But Andy is definitely one of those people. And him and I have a great conversation today just about the economy in general, where things are going, investment opportunities, what to look for. And given what's going on, it's anybody's guess how things are going to shake out. At the same time, some of the things we discuss are what you can start paying attention to and hopefully start to identify opportunities when they arise. So I'm going to get to the interview. It's a little bit longer of an interview. You guys are going to enjoy it. Uh, Andy's just an incredible guy and he's a great speaker, very well articulated and can explain things in very simple terms. So I think you guys are going to enjoy this one. Go check out the website for show notes. We mentioned a lot of things in here, books, other people, blogs, et cetera. And uh, so you're going to want to go there to access those. It's thewellstandard.com. Just pull up the episode. Uh, plus, if you know you haven't checked out the resources section yet, we've got a lot of cool resources on there that you're going to want to know about in relation to episodes that we've had thus far this year, but also some other interesting things I think you guys would benefit from. So check out the resources section on the webpage as well. Okay, guys, I hope you're uh, enjoying your summer so far. hope you guys are having fun and enjoying this different type of lifestyle that we're, uh, that we're currently in. Take care. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Taking a break from the show. You know, entrepreneurs inspire me. I love meeting leaders of successful ventures who discover an idea, formulate the business, and then execute. You'd assume that they know how to structure their personal finances. I believed that too, but I was wrong. Entrepreneurs are never taught to effectively manage their wealth to work alongside their business and lifestyle. All of that work, effort, toil, and time wasted. Entrepreneur 101 is an online course that teaches you a financial strategy that works so that success is not a flash in the pan, but lasting. The spirit of the entrepreneur doesn't have to be compromised. Register for the Entrepreneur 101 course today for free 
at thewellstandard.com forward slash E-N-T. That's Echo November Tango. Thewellstandard.com forward slash E-N-T. Hey everyone, how you doing? Man, I've had uh, about a two and a half hour conversation with my good friend, Andy Tanner. And we have some cool stuff for you today. I think this is going to be a, a very appropriate conversation given what's going on in the economy right now. There's a lot. And I think I include myself in the group that feels somewhat paralyzed and deer in the headlights and trying to figure out what to do. So I thought of no one better to pick my brain apart and help me understand what's going on than Andy Tanner. If that's really true, you need to expand your circle of friends. If that's really true, (laughs) Patrick and I, we get together fairly regularly, not weekly or anything like that, but we get together. And when we do, it's just like this smorgasbord feast of reflection and sharing and perspective that, you know, usually if we schedule something for an hour, we know it's pretty much the afternoon because we tried to do that before and it just doesn't work. Yeah. So we just know that Patrick spends so much time learning and so much time researching and just, you know, spending time thinking. And we've, I wouldn't say we live in an echo chamber, but we share a lot of common relationships. And we both are friends with Richard Duncan, who's a former IMF consultant. He's an economist. He's, he's one of the smartest guys I know. And so I had a conversation with him. And then I think you had one shortly after that. So now we've come back together to talk a little bit about, okay, what'd you get from Richard? what I get from Richard? And, uh, That's what we've been chatting about for the last couple hours. We thought we should do a podcast. And the nuggets, you know, we want to pull from it are what would be most valuable to you. Because I think there's so much going on in the economy that most people are not familiar with. And talking to Richard, I became clearer about certain things. And, you know, I've had lots of response to it, right? And that's what we want to speak to him because the response isn't necessarily what's happening and what system do we operate in? It's more geared to the system that we should operate in. And that's well, what I think is really, really valuable. So Andy, I'll throw it on you first because your business, what you teach, right, is paying attention to what markets are doing, what asset prices are like, what impact do interest rates have on value. You're looking at this every single day. I mean, when you talk to Richard, what stood out most to you that would help you better educate your audience and understand the economy at a deeper level? Well, the context you said around that is one that we should maybe dwell on for a second is the idea of practicality. Is if someone's watching us right now, we can give our opinions and talk about concepts, but what is it that I can put into practice? Where is the practicality? And what we find in what we study and what we learn, that's really the most valuable nuggets is stuff I can use. Because at the end of the day, when you learn something, you have to be able to say, it isn't about learning what's right or what's wrong, or like you say, what should be, it's what can I use and what can I do tomorrow to you know, what should I study and what can I do in my own sphere? And so that's an important thing. So the thing I took away to answer your question from Richard is we talked a lot about the idea of what are the consequences of stimulus in terms of money creation and debt? What are the consequences of the Fed? The right or wrong question is, should the Fed have this much power? Is that what should be? 
Well, you know, that's up for debate, but the reality is they have it. And so whether I agree with printing a lot of money or don't, what's the practicality of it? So for me, I decided during COVID very early on after I spoke with Richard during this pandemic is that I was going to increase my study of monetary policy because the decisions I need to make practically are staying in stocks or buying protection in stocks or even buying new stocks and selling others. And I'm making those practical day-to-day decisions based on watching much, much more the Fed than any other factor in the world. So from a practicality standpoint, what do I put in practice? Protecting stocks, holding stocks, or buying new stocks. And you know, I have other asset classes too that, that matter, but that's where the rubber meets the road for me because I have to know that stuff. Well, that's what I sent to you in preparation to this about a week or so ago is you know, Dalio's video that I've mentioned on the podcast before. It became more clear to me about what he was, was saying. But that's the main thing I walked away from my conversation with Richard is this ideal way of that things should work according to me, right? Or another person, but then there's reality. And there's things you can control and things you can't control. And right now, I can't control the monetary system that I live in, right? It comes down to what can I understand about it? And subsequently, what can I do about it? right? To improve business, to improve my lifestyle, to increase wealth, to help podcast audience. Because that's, you know, a lot of the feedback I've gotten was, well, it should be like this. The Fed should do this and the government should do this. And it's like, okay, in the end, whether they should or shouldn't, they're going to do things that are outside of your control. Now, if you know that and they say this or do this, as you mentioned, Andy, if the Fed is going to do this, if you pay attention to this news, then you can subsequently see what the next domino is in that stack and make a decision accordingly. The Alcoholics and Anonymous people, they're in a rough spot in their lives. And so how do you find serenity? And that serenity prayer for an investor is as good for an investor it would be for someone that's trapped in a substance abuse situation. And with my wife and my sons during COVID, There's unrest politically. There's a war of racism right now that's raging. And, you know, you look at a little 14-year-old mind or a 12-year-old mind who's very connected to media and sees the news. And this is an interesting time for family. And that idea of serenity, where does it come from? Well, it doesn't come from maybe advocating so much as it is beginning here. Not that you shouldn't advocate, but what can I control? What can I not control? Let's get the wisdom to know the difference. Accept the stuff you can't, change the stuff you can. And so as I learn about things like MMT and what they're doing with you know, monetary theory and the amount of printing money, you know, I don't have any control over the stimulus today. I have a vote and that's for another day. But for July, there's absolutely no impact that I can have, at least in my sphere of influence, on whether or not we do another trillion dollars in July. And so from a practicality standpoint, how does that, what does that mean to you as a listener? If you're in stocks or an investor, you have to decide whether it's right or wrong or whether we should be bailing ourselves out or we should let the forest fire burn out for new growth or should we spend money to fight the fire? Meaning COVID type of stuff, do we let COVID burn through? Or do we keep trying to flatten the curve? Do we 
overwhelm the hospital system or not. All those decisions are really out of our control. But what I can control is, am I going to buy puts to protect stocks or am I going to short the market? Well, for me, the answer is no right now, because if they put a trillion dollars, another trillion in, in July, which I think they're going to have to do, clearly the stock market has made the decision to go with the Fed as opposed to any other number. You and I looked at some charts earlier today going back to 2018, and everything was fine in 2018. Economy's roaring, unemployment's low. The end of 2018, the Fed says, hmm, maybe we should reload our gun a little bit. Maybe we should raise interest rates so we can lower them again on a rainy day. And the market, the VIX just market tanked. And we have a chart that you and I looked at that showed we were more afraid of a market crash when the Fed raised the interest rates a half a point than we were of COVID-19 today in terms of how it might affect the market. And that's where, again, looking at those signals, the Fed is essentially, a, they're the first domino in our monetary system, whether they expand or contract the money supply. It's everything. That basically sets in motion, right, a cascading effect. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't consequences and whether that's the right thing to do or not, it's done. Knowing that, now you can start to look at, okay, how is that going to impact unemployment? How is that going to impact housing? How is that going to impact my job, the company I work for, talking to you, the audience? You start to ask questions of, okay, what domino is next? And what is after that? And what is after that? And what that does is it helps you to either play you know, a more defensive role or play an offensive role. Right, defensive, which is ooh, that could negatively impact employment. Therefore, I should probably stock up on some reserves and maybe look at other places to live, right, or another company to work yeah. for. And not only to use your domino metaphor, it's not only the first one to fall; it weighs more than every other domino on the table. I mean, when it falls, it doesn't just like trigger one; it just smashes like half the dominoes on the table and. From a practicality standpoint, right, in making these decisions, it's not only important to understand what it does, what's the magnitude of those decisions? And you talk about this idea of, of whether it's right or wrong in your opinion. And I mentioned that the thing I would communicate with people if they want to study this is really understand the power of the Fed. Understand how big is that? Not that it's just the first one. How big is it? to where it's able to overwhelm the worst economic data that I have ever seen in 20 years of doing this and that I could look back and see. And we, and Andy, we looked at those charts. I mean, we looked at the velocity of money, velocity of money, and one money velocity, supply. velocity, which is like the lowest in history, right? You have productivity measurements at the lowest in history. We've never had money halt like this in the U S and that's probably an extrapolation globally. We've never seen business just halt like this. And the NASDAQ is at new highs, yeah. Patrick. The NASDAQ is at all-time highs. COVID didn't even happen as far as the NASDAQ is concerned. That's the power. Like, think of the power of the Fed is that we have the worst unemployment since 1929. Like you talk about velocity, people should understand this. Is gross domestic product is hard for people to understand because the number gets bigger and the number gets smaller. And so it can be very tricky. People think it's a, a function of volume. It's not. It's a function of speed. 
So what it really is, if you had a counter that clicked every time money changed hands, the number on that counter would go up. That's GDP. So I go and mow your grass and you give me $25 for it or whatever, you know, $50 to mow your grass. The government says, yeah, the government says, cha-ching, taxes me. But then I take the remainder of that 50 and I go to R&R Barbecue. Click another transaction. Now that same $50 has now been transacted twice. So now the GDP has gone from 50 to 100. The money supply didn't increase, but the velocity of that $50. And so R&R takes it and they pay one of their employees, cha-ching. They take it and they go to a movie, cha-ching. None of those things are happening. I might mow your grass, but I'm not going to R&R now because I'm scared of COVID. And even if I did, that employee is not going to the movies because they're not open. So there's been a halt to the velocity in those counters. And so our GDP shrinks, not because the amount of money's less or it's just we're not doing business. We're not consuming what's being produced. There's something called a producer index and a manufacturer's index and a purchasing manufacturer's index. So if I'm a purchaser of raw materials to be manufactured into goods, you know, I work at Tesla and I'm the guy in charge of buying the raw materials to make a Tesla. Well, if I spend money to buy those materials to make a Tesla and I don't think I'm going to sell Teslas, now all of my money's caught in inventory which is devastating to a business if you have money caught in inventory that you can't sell because that's money you got to pay on if you're leveraging and it just halts. So when you look at the, the purchasing managers numbers where they all report what they're buying, they're the lowest I've ever seen them ever because they don't think they can sell anything. So all of this stuff starts to grind to a halt and all these numbers should say, businesses are not going to be profitable. They're not going to be able to pay dividends. They're going to suck. So why would you want to buy businesses like that? I'll tell you why. Because the Fed's going to buy them up and drive the price higher with supply and demand. So from a practicality standpoint, I see a detachment from fundamentals and I see an increase in technical activity, supply and demand activity. That's practical knowledge I can use to make decisions on where I want to be. You want to fight the Fed? Whew. And that's it's a big domino to fight. Well, you said supply and demand, right? And it's artificial demand, right? It's supply artificial demand. demand yes. Fundamentals, whether you're going to get money, you're going to gain from it in dividend form, long-term growth. But now you have the Fed stepping in that's going to create artificial demand. And right? you could say that's a bubble, but the thing it is, whether it's artificial demand or real demand, the transactions are not artificial. The stocks are going to be bought and the price goes up and the stocks are bought. So whether that's, I talked with Richard Duncan and he and I disagreed on it. What should happen is, you know, I say what should happen is the Fed probably should have stuck to just buying U.S. treasuries, but the Fed decided to buy corporate bonds and toxic ones at that, right? Toxic ones at that. Janet Yellen comes out and says, you know, we should expand the Fed's power to buy equities. And Richard said, I agree, that'll prop up the stock market. And I'm like, yeah, but now you're buying companies that suck. Just like you bought all the crappy debt, now you can buy a crappy company in the name of keeping their stock price high. Well, if their company sucks. But if you're a technical guy and you, you know, if you care about dividends, that's probably going to be ugly. 
But if you care about buy low, sell high, stock market's probably going to boom. That's the power of the Fed. Morally, I gave you the analogy of Batman, where he, he's trying to find the Joker, so he taps everyone's cell phones. And Lucius comes in and says, what the heck? This is immoral and illegal. And he says, yeah, but I need this much power to get things done because we're an emergency and the emergency deems that I use this power and abuse this power to find the Joker. And Lucius says, no one man should have this much power. So from a moral standpoint, we can talk all day about whether the Fed should be able to do all this crazy stuff and whether we should have that amount of power. But in reality, practically, there's nothing I can do about that. I can vote. I got one vote. That's not much power. And I can spend my time marching or I can spend my time preparing. That's a big deal. You know, I'm not going to march against the Fed. I'd rather march for equality and racism if I'm going to march. But I'm not going to march against the Fed. That's a waste of time. It's a monster that I would say, who knows if this monetary system is going to just continue on. It's massive. And it's the entire world. And that's what, you know, Ray Dalio talks about is, you know, you have those three kind of core factors, which if you understand them, you can see how things are going to end up, right? And so you have the productivity, then you have short-term debt cycle and the yeah. long-term debt yeah. cycle. The long-term debt cycle is a new monetary system, right? Which comes around every so often. 10 years, according to him. Yeah. And that's where- who, Or 100 who years, whatever it was. If it's going to adjust, it's going to be worldwide. But when that happens, then you'll know what to do about it. So preparing for it to happen is one thing, right? But then acting after it happens is another. And I look at acting after it happens, right, is understanding the anticipation factor, which is seeing what they're going to do. And then subsequently, what are the dominoes that fall after that? But I look at trying to, to take a moral stand against the Fed is just, it's a losing battle every single time. And so now that you have understanding about how markets work, how the debt cycles work, how the Fed works and what they're going to do. If they stimulate in the summer, what's going to happen? If they don't stimulate, what's, what's going to happen? happen? They're going to stimulate. It's pretty clear to me, even at the risk of the dollar, the more deflationary events that they see, and historically in 2007 and eight, this happened. So historically, as deflationary as, the, as these events can be, they have more and more confidence by balancing deflationary circumstances with inflationary policies because they have made a total commitment not to go to 1929, a total commitment not to do that. These numbers are worse than 1929. And uh, they said, look, it worked in 08. It's going to work again. And now we have, instead of a trillion dollar deficit, we got a $3 trillion deficit in three months. Not in a year, Patrick, three months. We're going to put another trillion on top of that this July. They've made a total commitment to doing that. So the, the dilemma someone has as an investor and a 401k holder is, well, how does that affect things for me? And what's going to happen in my retirement? I'll say this. I'm less scared for the entrepreneurs that are savvy. There'll be some small business owners that are just kind of fly by night. But the entrepreneurs kind of know what they're doing. High-level investors, they study this stuff. They get it. But I'll tell you, the average person of 401k they're not talking about what you and I are talking about today. They're, they're distracted by other stuff. And I'll tell you right now, there has never been 
a more important time for financial education in the history of mankind. Never, ever before. In markets, right? Because when there's leverage and also unprecedented actions, you have big swings. And that's what most long-term investors don't get, right? Is the bigger the swing, the worse the average. Because if you lose 30% in a month, right? And then you gain that 30% the next month, you're not back to break even. You lose 50%, you got to have a 100% increase to get back to even. We looked at debt today. You and I looked at the latest numbers on debt. I mean, just the private debt alone, being corporate stuff, is bigger than the GDP already. So, you know, you have national debt to GDP, corporate debt, and the national debt's 20, about 22, 23, 25 trillion right now. Well, corporate's bigger than that. And the, the GDP is shrinking because the velocity money is stopping. Figure that. I mean, how important is it to know the power of the Fed? Because you got unemployment bad. All those producer indexes, all those consumer indexes, debt is high and GDP shrinks and the NASDAQ's at an all-time high. That's the power of the Federal Reserve. In hindsight, look at how quickly they responded, right? And how they- In a short time, yeah, yeah. And mass, like, if you look at the subprime meltdown of 07, or we kind of have 07, 08, and 09, and 09, you hit the bottom. So over three years, they say, well, we're going to do this much a month. And then on the way up, they still thought we were struggling. So they go, well, we'll do 50 billion a month. Or we'll do 50 billion here and 50 billion. And it just took years to put that amount in. COVID 19, 3 trillion in a week. Well, you also had, I mean, look at what the mortgage industry did, where within days, week maybe, right? Automatic forbearance. Here's what you can do you can defer, you can defer. Because last thing they want is default, yeah. because if they default, then now you have all the credit swaps right? They get triggered if there's default on the mortgage bonds. And so that's where they're at a different level. They learned a lot from that 2007, 2008, 2009. Their confidence is high. They're all using all of those tools to combat this. Faster. For sure. And it's almost immediate. What's frightening is you use the word artificial. So think about this. All the people who did get laid off are not working. So you have artificial what I'm saying is, is the paycheck is artificial because the work's not being done. So we're getting paid and they're going to take that money and go out and their consumer behavior. Like I said, it's the transaction that matters, not the artificiality of it. So these are not artificial transactions. It's artificial wealth. In other words, I got laid off. I get my stimulus check. I'm still going to the grocery store but that's not a true representation of my standing. It's borrowed money from the government. Well, that works with assets too. You know, I decide to buy stock and that money is coming from borrowed money. And yet, whether it's a real demand or an artificial demand, the transaction is still happening. So underneath all this, you also have people who are employed who are really unemployed. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you have the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP loans. So if you take that money, Patrick, are you allowed to lay people off? No. So your check is an unemployment check now coming from you instead of the government because you have people that are not working and when they don't work, you lay them off. 
But the government says, no, we'll send money to you to keep them employed, but they're not working. So our unemployment is higher than we think because they have got the government unemployment program, but PPP is a corporate unemployment program. So the number of unemployed is higher. And when that money runs out on both ends, oh my gosh. And I'll tell you, I've got a lot of friends who have learned how to trim and learned how to innovate and been forced to economize. And a lot of them have been telling me, actually, this is one of the best things that ever happened because we got smarter as a business. They're not going to hire those people back. It isn't like when we go back to a new normal, they'll say, oh, yeah, we need everybody again. They'll say, no, we've learned to use technology. We've learned, I mean, oh, this telecommute stuff is really actually cool. And, you know, this technology and online meetings. And I have this manager, I paid him a hundred grand. I realized he really didn't do a hundred grand worth of work. And that's it's what happened funny. in 2008, 2009. Right? We had that for sure. People like, I think that's just when you experience something that's difficult. Cause here's the thing. It's like, even though there was intervention by the government, there was stimulus, there was unemployment benefits, there was the PPP loans and other programs, disaster relief programs. Those helped at the same time, the psychological impact, right? You can't paper over that. And even though it wasn't the impact of loss, okay, it was pretty close. And I think what happened is people start, you know, in those moments, that's where the greatest lessons are. And that's where you learn to be more efficient. You're smarter. You ask different questions. You're aware of different things, right? And you no longer tolerate what you may have tolerated in the past. And that's going to change the nature in which businesses operate, regardless of what happens with Fed if they continue to stimulate. This is still in motion, right? The dominoes are like in the process of being hit or falling. Who knows how they're going to land or when they're going to land? Okay, but regardless, like these things are in motion. And if you understand that, hey, it could fall this way, it could fall that way, right? You're not going to be able to control that, but hopefully you can get a grasp on, okay, if they do fall, what am I going to do? Or if I think they're going to fall, what's a way in which I can mitigate my risk or have additional options? You know, I look at right now as just an incredible time for learning and introspection. And that's where, you know, I would say the one thing that's in Ray Dalio's how the economic machine works is the idea of productivity. That's one thing that is you're creating kind of the, the money or the currency that people are spending, but productivity is probably at the lowest level ever. And it's continuing. It hasn't necessarily come to fruition yet. Yeah. Richard Duncan talked about productivity and creditism. And he said on, when I talked to him, he says, there's no capitalism anymore. It's creditism because you can't have productivity without an expansion of credit. Yep. Delio talks about expansion and contraction though, if that's inevitable and he's right. MMT, modern monetary theorists believe in expansion without contraction. They believe that as far as debt goes, you can just expand it, that the expansion contraction comes through money supply, not debt. And that if you can just run deficits to high heaven, it doesn't even matter. There's no, look, if, there is no problem with the deficit because we can print money. It's all inflation for them. So from a practicality standpoint, it's like the book Rich Dad Poor Dad, where it talks about go to school, get a job, save money. You can't do that. If MMT is all about inflation, saving money, you have to be very smart about saving money because it can be devalued very quickly now from a practicality standpoint. 
And I think it's worth mentioning that this new normal, I think if the occupation I think is the scariest right now is teacher, because we talked about entrepreneurs trimming the fat. Well, a homeschooled kid, let me ask you this. I've never homeschooled my kids before this time. I always thought, you know what? A lot of people do it, but I don't want to spend the time, blah, 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 blah. Name one person you know that's homeschooled their kid and regretted it. And name one person you know that's homeschooled their kid and said, you know what? I think I'm going to put them back in public school. Name one. So what happens is with homeschool is all of a sudden I realize this is pretty good quality time with my kid where he's not playing a video game and I get to be his teacher. There's dopamine hits by being a teacher and having victories with your kids. I also realized that if he has a question, I don't ask the teacher. I go to Khan Academy. I Google it and I realize all the teacher's doing is grading the assignments. I'm getting a better relationship with my kid. This is time well spent. I can do this. So the school boards are screaming for people to go. So from a practicality standpoint, what do I practice in my life? People are going to find they're not relevant and that their skill set wasn't as valuable as they thought it was. I think you're going to see a private tutor. A private tutor is going to be more valuable than a public school teacher in a hurry. And that's, again, going to the dominoes, right? That could happen. It may not happen. It may happen. But if it does and you're a teacher, what do you do right now to prepare? Again, this is... You're going to have to be a better teacher. Right. But like, how do you position yourself to capitalize on what happens, whether it should or shouldn't happen? Something's going to happen. You're going to have to produce more value as a teacher. Look, you're going to hire private teachers for your kids this year. So am I, right? And we're going to be more involved in that. And it sounds like, oh, that's so expensive. We can't afford it. It's like, no way. These are 15, 20. What do they pay? Look, what do they pay public school teachers? 40, 50. A public school teacher says, I'm going to become a private tutor for five families. They probably make more money than they ever made in school. And who am I going to pick? The one that's kind to my kid. The one that helps, the one that makes things simple for him. And the one that does a good job, goes the extra mile. You can't hide behind tenure professors. I'm telling you, it's going to change it. So there's, there's never been accountability in education until now. So and, and I'm not saying that it's perfect accountability, but you know, they're being challenged now. And now you know, sure. there are other options and that's the nature which, you know, of a market. Which brings it to anyone listening. Like what is your education hierarchy? In my education hierarchy, there's four levels. There's stuff that's vital to know. There's stuff that's important to know. There's stuff that's interesting to know and stuff that's trivial. And for most people, when they think of education, a school board determines what is where. So if I say dissecting a frog, they put that as vital. Like every kid should dissect the frog. Not just the surgeons, not just the doctors, like every kid cuts up Kermit. Okay. That's vital to them. How about financial education? Trivial. Trivial. So this is the opportunity. If you want to have practical knowledge, knowledge you can use, certainly worry about moral hazards, certainly worry about how things should be, but worry more about what is your education hierarchy from a practicality standpoint? What is the knowledge and skills that can help you right now in your situation? What do you need to learn? What do you want to learn? categorize what you have. Take that away from the Board of Education and say, okay, I'm graduating now. I'm 50 years old. What am I going to learn right now? I now get to choose what 
I want to learn. I'm going to give you my counsel. They say, Andy, what should I learn? Well, I'm not your school board of education. You got to decide that. But I will tell you right now, if you're not studying modern monetary theory, if you don't know who Warren Mosler is, if you haven't watched his video about his business card and Guido out in the hall with the gun, you don't know what I'm talking about, better Google that. Because if you don't know what Warren Mosler teaches, because that's what we're going to do, whether you like it or not, or whether you think it'll work or not. In my echo chamber I live in, most people think MMT won't work. I'm not afraid of it not working because if it doesn't work, it'll fail. We'll start over and forest fire, new growth. Great. What I'm more scared of is that it does work because now you have Batman with unlimited power and no Lucius, Lucius retires, resigns. That's frightening to me, but it's the world I have to live in. And so I got to buy stocks in that world of MMT. But at the same time, looking at our our monetary system as it stands right now, right? There's a different level of accountability. However, we're straying from that because all these trillions of dollars, I mean, man, like the whole world would have to completely transform in order to have enough revenue and tax revenue to pay debt back. There's just not enough. There's hardly enough to pay back the interest. The Fed is an appointee. Like people shouldn't, like when you take a civics class in high school, you learn legislative branch, judicial branch, executive branch. You know, that's about it. Man, understanding how the Federal Reserve works. Like if I ask people, if you polled everyone and said, who's Jerome Powell, Janet Yellen, Ben Bernanke, and Alan Greenspan? Who are those guys? Half of them don't know, maybe more. How are they appointed? Well, the president appoints them. Well, who has oversight? Congress. But that's all a facade. Because the, the fact of the matter is, whoever you choose, even if I disagree with MMT, we're so far down the road. That even if you choose me, I probably have no choice. We've chosen that road. And the only way to do to deal with it is go further down that road. So you have to prepare for that. How long does it last? Well, look at Japan. Japan invented the generational mortgage, 100 years. You got a 100-year mortgage. So part of the legacy you give your kid is the mortgage or the house has to be sold, and paid off with a sale. What's wrong with that, right? That's what they say. They've also innovated in that they have a 235 or 250% debt to GDP. Had it for a lot of years, hasn't seemed to bother them. So if you're predicting that this stuff will crash, (laughs) in the big short, the biggest stress those guys had was their timing of it. Because they thought it would happen sooner. It wasn't happening fast enough, right? And they look like geniuses. How many other people were doing the same thing? They just had the timing too early or too late. We look at those guys like geniuses. There could have been a thousand other traders. And they just happened to guess right on the time. It wasn't just that. They needed somebody to help them broker. Yeah, the, the whole deal. And negotiate it, right? It wasn't yeah. 100 cents on the dollar. A lot of those derivatives were invented by their negotiations, right? They didn't exist Mm-mm. before they brokered them. So... The world we live in right now, if if people think, oh, there's turmoil, all this type of stuff, smartest thing you can do, my opinion, study modern monetary theory, study the Fed, because that's the biggest domino in the world right now. Clearly, from where I sit, you know, you and I met, let's go back to this. We mentioned that chart of the, the volatility index, which is the fear gauge. And I looked at where we are now and where we were at the end of 2018. We're more afraid, based on that index, we're more afraid of the Fed pulling back stimulus. That will cause more fear of a market crash 
than a freaking global pandemic will. Think about that. Look at where the VIX was going into 2019. In December of 2018, it's at a higher level then than it is today with the worst employment numbers we've ever had, the worst economic numbers, the GDP is going to suck. I mean, we got social upheaval in the United States to a degree that I've never seen in my young 50-year life. And yet we have less fear of the market going down today, less fear of a market crash with a global pandemic and social upheaval and unemployment, less fear than we did when the Fed started tightening policy. The Fed is where the power is. Study it. Let's do some takeaways. So first off, why July? You stated that there'll be stimulus in July. What about July makes you think that? From what I've been able to read and ascertain is the velocity of money stops. So picture currency as a current, like a river. The dam is a stoppage of that. So COVID stops it and the currency stops. That velocity of money we're talking about stops. So how do you break through that dam? You pour more money in and put pressure to move things forward. In other words, COVID stops me from having a business and going to the movies. Okay, well, we'll pour money into that so those people still have money to buy groceries and do stuff. Okay, so we push through. Well, all we did is kick the can down the road. COVID's still there. It's getting worse in a lot of places. Velocity of money isn't, it's stopped again. So that's kind of where July is, is that's where this money is gone through and pushed it as far as it can go now. Still stop, got to have another round. We've got to have another round to keep businesses in business, this is to keep payroll on the payroll, to keep unemployment going. Unemployment six months, so that's more the fall, but there's still not enough money. From where I've read and what I've seen, July is going to take another trillion of stimulus to get us through. What do you think about who knows what happens in the fall? What impact is second quarter earnings going to have? It's been interesting. Earnings, it's been a mixed bag because one person's tragedy is another person's opportunity. I mean, look, what do you think? How much business do you think Zoom is worth now as opposed to two months ago, right? Some of the ones that have been wild that I haven't understood is like Wayfair. Like, why does Wayfair do well? Well, people are sitting at home and they, let's repaint. Let's go buy new furniture. Let's, Let's go do, like, how come Wayfair's up? So you have companies like that have done very, very well in this time. But companies haven't. So it's kind of a technology has been great. The earnings have been good. Others, not so well. Banks, you know, not so well. So it's kind of a mixed bag earnings wise. What about GDP? Do you look at like... It's going to shrink. Yeah. But do you think that's priced in already? No. Is the Fed intervention priced in? Yes. Which is scary because see, a couple of things happen. The biggest thing is the Fed, right? They keep money pouring. Things will be okay. You got a small amount of stock market propping up, like you got Robinhood who got 3 million new accounts. E-Trade had another 300,000 accounts. Ameritrade had 600,000 accounts out in the first quarter. So that's new money coming in from everyone's check. The real stuff is from the Fed. It's the trillions, not the millions uh, that are being brought to prop it up. Yeah, the GDP is going to drop and it's probably priced in. And also people see opportunity in a low market. I mean, When you see a drop in the market right now, it's tough because you know that the Fed might pour another trillion into it. So it's very hard for people not to buy dips 
thinking that in the short term, it's going to do well. It's very hard for people not to buy dips because they think it's on sale. And I think they're right, is that if the Fed is going to put in that much cash, how can you not be get exposure to equities if there's that much cash being dumped in? So priced in, you know, I don't know for sure. But I do know that all investors are watching the Fed and if they dump money in, regardless, well, look, Patrick, have the numbers mattered anyway? Have they really mattered anyway? Oh, GDP was bad. Unemployment was bad. Right? No, those numbers matter anyway. It is the Fed. And as long as they keep pumping money in, what do I care what GDP well, the thing too is? Like? They have like a, a pretty good bet far as what narrative to use that will, I would say, keep people at bay. The reason I don't care so much about GDP, like if you'd asked me six months ago what the most important number in the economy was, I would say GDP, number one, employment, number two, corporate earnings, number three, okay? Grow, earnings and growth, those are the top four numbers I would care about. You ask me that today, I don't care about any of those numbers. How much money is the Fed going to print? Yep. Because that domino blows away that it creates a detachment from fundamentals, in my opinion. And I said that to Richard Duncan, I go, you know, if they start using money to buy equities, doesn't that create a detachment from fundamentals? He goes, Andy, where have you been the last 10 years? There's already a detachment. The 401k caused a detachment from fundamentals because people are buying broad-based indexes with no evaluation on schedule. Every two weeks, they're going to buy broad-based index of companies with no Warren Buffett research on the companies. So the detachment fundamentals means that I care less about the GDP now and earnings and employment and all the stuff we used to care about. I just got one question. How much money is the Fed going to print? It's the only question. How much are they going to print? Because none of the other numbers matter if they print. Okay, Crazy. so now I guess this is my big takeaway from the last six months as far as what I've learned. You know, now that we know that, what are the practical things somebody can do? We mentioned them already, but I would say the first thing is you need to understand the monetary system that we're in and also a monetary system that we may go into in the future. So you alluded to MMT and the guy that, you know, initially Martin Mosler. propagated that. Yep. So we'll put those links in the show notes. What are the best ways to understand how the economy works right now? I've referenced Ray Dalio's thing. I think that's somewhat, it's a good introduction to it. What else would you recommend as far as understanding how our current monetary system works? Boy, that's a tough thing, resources. I love Richard Duncan's stuff. I'll give him a shout out. His stuff is kind of complex. It is. It, it's not someone walks into and says, oh, that was an easy class to take, but he has a a course on monetary policy. It's like 500 bucks or whatever. And I referred a lot of students there to learn that. But I think even bigger is what you said before you even start trying to learn is what's your context. And I think the first thing I sit down and do is I say, how am I thinking about this? What can I control? What can I control? And where do I want to put my energy first before I even do any of that? The second thing is, is I look at what value I give to the world. And what tier or what level is that in, right? Where do I fit in the value I give to the world? And is there a threat to me of what we call obsolescence risk? Can you name those levels again? Oh, as far as your hierarchy? Yeah. 
Yeah. What is vital for me to know right now? I can't give an answer to everyone, Patrick, because everyone's in a different situation. I think people can categorize the value they bring. To they the have to ask that. Years. Yes. They have to ask that question of themselves is what's vital. Okay. Now what's important? And people say, what's the difference between important and vital? I always tell a joke with this. I say, look, it's very, very important that my wife give me a present on my birthday. That's important. It's vital that I give my wife a present on her birthday. <laughs> and the word vital means like, is it important for me to have my hand? Like if I lost my hand, would that bother me? Yeah, it's pretty important that I have my hand, but it's not vital. vital. So the difference between vital and important is like vital is without it, you die. Important is it's a huge advantage to know it. Okay. Interesting is interesting. It engages me. It's fun to observe. Trivial is just trivial, trivial pursuit, right? It's meaningless, barely even interesting. That's trivial to me. So value is in the eye of the beholder. And the reason that is, is everyone's circumstance. You know, on my wall right here, that little black thing right there is an NCAA, you know, it's a wristwatch from the 1993 NCAA tournament. And the only way you get one of those is if you played in the tournament. On eBay, that's probably worth 300 bucks if I sold on eBay. That's their value on it. I wouldn't sell that for a hundred thousand bucks. You give me a million dollars for it, it's yours. But for a hundred thousand, I, I don't do it. So values in the eye of the beholder. So what's vital to you? What's important to you? And I have to say, what's my occupation? What value do I give the world? Do I need to change that? Do I need to enhance that? How do I do this with me in the world? What value do I? Uh, and we mentioned it doesn't have to be a completely new career. It could be I'm a teacher. No. I'm going to be a better teacher. Circumstances or the environment in which you teach. What's wrong with innovation? Well, people want security. They want it the same. They want to hold on to 10 years. Like, you know, I just want to, I had this plan in my life and I don't want to change it. Change is not a word people like, but I'll tell you what, improvement's a nice word. And improvement is a form of change. Do you want to change things about your life? No, I don't want to change anything about my life. Would you like to improve your circumstances? Yes. Well, that's a form of change. What's wrong with thinking about that? What's wrong with that? So I would say if you're an investor, which is the guys I speak to, or you're a 401k guy and you're worried about retirement, first thing top of your list is sovereign fundamentals, MMT, monetary policy. I've said it the whole podcast. What can the single most important thing to learn is? Start studying that. I have courses on it that I teach, but I'm still changing my courses because I'm still a student learning more. I know this is the thing to learn. That I do know. It's vital on mine, vital, like ultra freaking vital to understand that. Not to change it, not to advocate against it, not to agree with it, but to understand the rules of the game so I can play it. And that's, I think, the most important piece is like the rules of the game. Like there's certain rules in our life that we can you know, have control over, but there are some universal rules as far as our economy is concerned, the global economy, right? That you don't choose. And they're essentially set, they're laid out. And if you want to operate in this type of economy using this currency, using these resources, these are the rules. And most people, I, I, number one, they don't know the rules. They're just kind of like waking up and living the same groundhog day every day. Yeah. It, kind of understand what are going on, but what's going on and then hope, wish things were a different way and want to advocate that. But I think there's others that this is where the wisdom comes in as far as the serenity prayer, which is understanding the differences that are out there and understanding the actual environment that you're in and how to behave in that specific environment and also anticipate maybe environments to come and how you can prepare yourself. 
I don't like to always go back to what I've taught in the past because, you know, is what I taught in the past valid today? You know, are there principles that are universal, generalized principles that are true in all cases? I don't know. Are they there? I don't know. But I'll tell you, there's three that I'll leave everyone with. The first one was the hierarchy, what's valuable to you, what's vital. Okay, that helps you determine what you want to study. It's very, very important not to remove yourself. It's vital to remove yourself from a context of advice to one of education. They're different. Advice is when you're asking people what to do. If you're finding yourself saying, I wish I knew what to buy right now, tell me what to buy, you're going to lose your money because advice is usually changeable, wrong, costs too much. So get out of asking, like going to a planner and saying, what should I buy? He doesn't know any more than you do. So education is like, if you say, should I buy Bitcoin? If I say yes, how much smarter did you get about Bitcoin? If I say no, how much smarter did you get? You're asking for a fish. You have no fishing skills. And then the third one you mentioned is once I do learn something and I do feel I have some knowledge, temperament is huge because it's your temperament that allows you to execute and do what you're supposed to do instead of what your gut or your, you know, all this is telling you to do. But when I read the book, The Intelligent Investor, again and again, You know, the first time I read it thinking intelligence was knowledge. The second time I read it, I realized intelligence is temperament. Intelligence is thinking, not being emotional, not freaking out. And so that's what I would say. Temperament, education, no advice, learn what's important to you. That's where you'd start. Well, Andy, this has been awesome. I mean, great to hang out. I've gotten a lot out of our four hour conversation. I'm always on the bottom end of that balance scale. You give me so much more than I ever feel I give Patrick. I value your friendship so much and not just because your knowledge. I just love hanging out with you and your wife and our kids. It's funny how our kids just have always gotten along so well, you know, it's really fun. So when COVID's over, we'll go back to Hawaii again. How about those pics of us in Hawaii? I sent you. I know. Absolutely. Their money, right? We got to do it again. We have to once Hawaii opens up. Once, once COVID's done. We'll put all the links to some of the resources that you mentioned. And I hope you guys got a lot out of this. This is, it's something that I think I have really curious uh, about as far as understanding kind of where we're at, where things are going, and then using kind of that law of deductive reasoning where you're able to kind of understand things. And if this happens and this happens and this happens, Because I think that's just the nature of the world that we live in. And things today, there's so much information. But if you focus on information that can potentially impact you, your employment, your assets, your lifestyle, your well-being, that stuff that's the most important should be at the the top of the list. And obviously, you have to avoid some distractions of other entertainment and information that's out there. At the same time, it's like we're in a very interesting time, time when there's a lot of things going on at the same time. And right now, it's more important than ever to understand things for yourself as opposed to relying on others, right, for their opinions and their perspectives. Because, you know, sometimes they may be right, but the one thing they may get wrong might impact your life in a really negative way. So now is the time to take ownership, take stewardship of your life, your wealth, what you understand about it. And hopefully that leads you to make great decisions. I wish everyone well. What a difficult time for our human family. And, uh, I feel like an empath. I feel like when they're hurting, I'm hurting. It's been more difficult to have prosperity 
uh, it's more fun to have prosperity when everyone else is being prosperous. And uh, it's just tough for folks right now. So, you know, if there's something we can do, you know, email us, ask us, whatever. If there's a way we can lift and serve, let us know. But yeah, that's about all I'd have to say. It's just, oh, the market just closed. Ding, ding. So anyway, uh, awesome. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Andy. Great to have you on. Thank you for your wisdom. We'll do this again soon. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh,